Section 26 The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant Transcendental Doctrine of Elements Part 2nd Transcendental Logic Second Division Transcendental Dialectic Book 2 Of the Dialectical Procedure of Pure Reason Chapter 2 The Antinomy of Pure Reason Section 2 Antithetic of Pure Reason Third and Fourth Antinomies Third Conflict of the Transcendental Ideas Thesis Causality, according to the laws of nature, is not the only causality operating to originate the phenomena of the world. A causality of freedom is also necessary to account fully for these phenomena. Proof Let it be supposed that there is no other kind of causality than that according to the laws of nature. Consequently, everything that happens presupposes a previous condition which it follows with absolute certainty and conformity with a rule. But this previous condition must itself be something that has happened, that has arisen in time, as it did not exist before. For, if it has always been in existence, its consequence or effect would not thus originate for the first time, but would likewise have always existed. The causality, therefore, of a cause, whereby something happens, is itself a thing that has happened. Now, this again presupposes, in conformity with the law of nature, a previous condition, and its causality, and this another anterior to the former, and so on. If, then, everything happens solely in accordance with the laws of nature, there cannot be any real first beginning of things, but only a subaltern or comparative beginning. There cannot, therefore, be a completeness of series on the side of the causes which originate the one from the other, but the law of nature is that nothing can happen without a sufficient a priori determined cause. The proposition, therefore, if all causality is possible only in accordance with the laws of nature, is, when stated in this unlimited and general manner, self-contradictory. It follows that this cannot be the only kind of causality. From what has been said, it follows that a causality must be admitted by means of which something happens without its cause being determined according to necessary laws by some other preceding. That is to say, there must exist an absolute spontaneity of cause, which of itself originates a series of phenomena which proceeds according to natural laws. Consequently, transcendental freedom, without which even in the course of nature the succession of phenomena on the side of causes, is never complete. Antithesis There is no such thing as freedom, but everything in the world happens solely according to the laws of nature. Proof Granted that there does exist freedom in the transcendental sense as a peculiar kind of causality operating to produce events in the world, a faculty, that is to say, of originating a state and consequently a series of consequences from that state. In this case, 
not only the series originated by this spontaneity, but the determination of this spontaneity itself to the production of the series, that is to say, the causality itself, must have an absolute commencement, such that nothing can proceed to determine this action according to unvarying laws. But every beginning of action presupposes in the acting cause a state of inaction, and a dynamically primal beginning of action presupposes a state which has no connection, as regards causality, with the preceding state of the cause, which does not, that is, in any wise result from it. Transcendental freedom is therefore opposed to the natural law of cause and effect, and such a conjunction of successive states and effective causes is destructive of the possibility of unity in experience, and for that reason, not to be found in experience, is consequently a mere fiction of thought. We have, therefore, nothing but nature to which we must look for connection and order in cosmical events. Freedom, independence of the laws of nature, is certainly a deliverance from restraint, but it is also a relinquishing of the guidance of law and rule. For it cannot be alleged that, instead of the laws of nature, laws of freedom may be introduced into the causality of the course of nature, for, if freedom were determined according to laws, it would be no longer freedom, but merely nature. Nature, therefore, and transcendental freedom, are distinguishable as conformity to law and lawlessness. The former imposes upon understanding the difficulty of seeking the origin of events ever higher and higher in the series of causes, inasmuch as causality is always conditioned thereby, while it compensates this labor by the guarantee of a unity complete and in conformity with the law. The latter, on the contrary, holds out to the understanding the promise of a point of rest in the chain of causes by conducting to it an unconditioned causality, which professes to have the power of spontaneous origination, but which, in its own utter blindness, deprives it of the guidance of rules by which alone a completely connected experience is possible. Observations on the Third Antinomy On the Thesis the transcendental idea of freedom is far from constituting the entire content of the psychological conception so termed, which is for the most part empirical. It merely presents us with the conception of spontaneity of action as the proper ground for imputing freedom to the cause of a certain class of objects. It is, however, the true stumbling-stone to philosophy, which meets with unconquerable difficulties in the way of its admitting this kind of unconditioned causality. That element in the question of the freedom of the will, which has for so long a time placed speculative reason in such perplexity, is properly only transcendental, and concerns the question whether there must be held to exist a faculty of spontaneous origination of a series of successive things or states. How such a faculty is possible is not a necessary inquiry, for in the case of natural causality itself, we are obliged to content ourselves with the a priori knowledge that such a causality must be presupposed, 
although we are quite incapable of comprehending how the being of one thing is possible through the being of another, but must for this information look entirely to experience. Now we have demonstrated this necessity of a free first beginning of a series of phenomena, only in so far as it is required for the comprehension of an origin of the world, all following states being regarded as a succession according to laws of nature alone. But, as there has thus been proved the existence of a faculty which can of itself originate a series in time, although we are unable to explain how it can exist, we feel ourselves authorized to admit, even in the midst of the natural course of events, a beginning, as regards causality, of different successions of phenomena, and at the same time to attribute to all substances a faculty of free action. But we ought, in this case, not to allow ourselves to fall into a common misunderstanding, and to suppose that, because a successive series in the world can only have a comparatively first beginning, another state or condition of things always preceding, an absolutely first beginning of a series in the course of nature is impossible. For we are not speaking here of an absolutely first beginning in relation to time, but as regards causality alone. When, for example, I, completely of my own free will, and independently of the necessarily determinative influence of natural causes, rise from my chair, there commences with this event including its material consequences in infinitum, an absolutely new series, although in relation to time this event is merely the continuation of a preceding series. For this resolution and act of mind do not form part of the succession of effects in nature, and are not mere continuations of it. On the contrary, the determining causes of nature cease to operate in reference to this event, which certainly succeeds the acts of nature, but does not proceed from them. For these reasons, the action of a free agent must be termed, in regard to causality, if not in relation to time, an absolutely primal beginning of a series of phenomena. The justification of this need of reason to rest upon a free act as the first beginning of the series of natural causes is evident from the fact that all philosophers of antiquity, with the exception of the Epicurean school, felt themselves obliged, when constructing a theory of the motions of the universe, to accept a prime mover, that is, a freely acting cause, which spontaneously and prior to all other causes evolved this series of states. They always felt the need of going beyond mere nature for the purpose of making a first beginning comprehensible. On the Antithesis The asserter of the all-sufficiency of nature in regard to causality, transcendental physiocracy, in opposition to the doctrine of freedom, would defend his view of the question somewhat in the following manner. He would say, in answer to the sophistical arguments of the opposite party, if you do not accept a mathematical first in relation to time, you have no need to seek a dynamical first in relation to causality. Who compelled you to imagine an absolutely primal condition of the world, and therewith an absolute beginning of the gradually progressing successions of phenomena, and, as some foundation for this fancy of yours, 
to set bounds to unlimited nature. Inasmuch as the substances in the world have always existed, at least the unity of experience renders such a supposition quite necessary, there is no difficulty in believing also that the changes in the conditions of these substances have always existed, and, consequently, that a first beginning, mathematical or dynamical, is by no means required. The possibility of such an infinite derivation, without any initial member from which all the others result, is certainly quite incomprehensible. But, if you are rash enough to deny the enigmatical secrets of nature for this reason, you will find yourself obliged to deny also the existence of many fundamental properties of natural objects, such as fundamental forces, which you can just as little comprehend, and even the possibility of so simple a conception as that of change, must present to you insuperable difficulties, for if experience did not teach you that it was real, you never could conceive a priori the possibility of this ceaseless sequence of being and non-being. But if the existence of a transcendental faculty of freedom is granted, a faculty of originating changes in the world, this faculty must at least exist out of and apart from the world, although it is certainly a bold assumption that, over and above the complete content of all possible intuitions, there still exists an object which cannot be presented in any possible perception. But, to attribute to substances in the world itself such a faculty, is quite inadmissible, for, in this case, the connection of phenomena reciprocally determining and determined according to general laws, which is termed nature, and along with it the criteria of empirical truth, which enable us to distinguish experience from mere visionary dreaming, would almost entirely disappear. In proximity with such a lawless faculty of freedom, a system of nature is hardly cogitable, for the laws of the latter would be continually subject to the intrusive influences of the former, and the course of phenomena, which would otherwise proceed regularly and uniformly, would become thereby confused and disconnected. Fourth Conflict of the Transcendental Ideas Thesis There exists either in or in connection with the world, either as a part of it or as the cause of it, an absolutely necessary being. Proof the world of sense, as the sum total of all phenomena, contains a series of changes, for without such a series, the mental representation of the series of time itself, as the condition of the possibility of the sensuous world, could not be presented to us. Footnote 55. Objectively, time, as the formal condition of the possibility of change, precedes all changes, but subjectively, and in consciousness, the representation of time, like every other, is given solely by occasion of perception. Back to text. But every change stands under its condition, which precedes it in time, and renders it necessary. Now, the existence of a given condition presupposes a complete series of conditions up to the absolutely unconditioned, which alone is absolutely necessary it follows that something that is absolutely necessary must exist, 
if change exists as its consequence. But this necessary thing itself belongs to the sensuous world, for suppose it to exist out of and apart from it, the series of cosmical changes would receive from it a beginning, and yet this necessary cause would not itself belong to the world of sense. But this is impossible. For, as the beginning of a series in time is determined only by that which precedes it in time, the supreme condition of the beginning of a series of changes must exist in the time in which this series itself did not exist. For a beginning presupposes a time preceding, in which the thing that begins to be was not in existence. The causality of the necessary cause of changes, and consequently the cause itself, must for these reasons belong to time, and to phenomena, time being possible only as the form of phenomena. Consequently, it cannot be cogitated as separated from the world of sense, the sum total of all phenomena. There is, therefore, contained in the world something that is absolutely necessary, whether it be the whole cosmical series itself, or only a part of it. Antithesis An absolutely necessary being does not exist, either in the world or out of it, as its cause. Proof Grant that either the world itself is necessary, or that there is contained in it a necessary existence. Two cases are possible. First, there must either be in the series of cosmical changes a beginning, which is unconditionally necessary and therefore uncaused, which is at variance with the dynamical law of the determination of all phenomena in time, or, secondly, the series itself is without beginning and, although contingent and conditioned in all its parts, is nevertheless absolutely necessary and unconditioned as a whole, which is self-contradictory. For the existence of an aggregate cannot be necessary if no single part of it possesses necessary existence. Grant, on the other hand, that an absolutely necessary cause exists out of and apart from the world. This cause as the highest member in the series of the causes of cosmical changes, must originate or begin the existence of the latter and their series. Footnote 56. The word begin is taken in two senses. The first is active, the cause being regarded as the beginning of a series of conditions, as its effect, infit. The second is passive, the causality and the cause itself beginning to operate, feet. I reason here from the first to the second. Back to text. In this case, it must also begin to act, and its causality would therefore belong to time, and consequently to the sum total of phenomena, that is, to the world. It follows that the cause cannot be out of the world, which is contradictory to the hypothesis. Therefore, neither in the world nor out of it, but in causal connection with it, does there exist any absolutely necessary being. Observations on the Fourth Antinomy On the Thesis 
To demonstrate the existence of a necessary being, I cannot be permitted in this place to employ any other than the cosmological argument, which ascends from the conditioned in phenomena to the unconditioned in conception, the unconditioned being considered the necessary condition of the absolute totality of the series. The proof, from the mere idea of a supreme being, belongs to another principle of reason, and requires separate discussion. The pure cosmological proof demonstrates the existence of a necessary being, but at the same time leaves it quite unsettled whether this being is the world itself, or quite distinct from it. To establish the truth of the latter view, principles are requisite which are not cosmological and do not proceed in the series of phenomena. We should require to introduce into our proof conceptions of contingent beings, regarded merely as objects of the understanding, and also a principle which enables us to connect these, by means of mere conceptions, with a necessary being. But the proper place for all such arguments is a transcendent philosophy, which has unhappily not yet been established. But if we begin our proof cosmologically, by laying at the foundation of it the series of phenomena, and the regress in it according to empirical laws of causality, we are not at liberty to break off from this mode of demonstration, and to pass over to something which is not itself a member of the series. The condition must be taken in exactly the same signification as the relation of the conditioned to its condition in the series has been taken, for the series must conduct us in an unbroken regress to this supreme condition. But, if this relation is sensuous, and belongs to the possible empirical employment of understanding, the supreme condition or cause must close the regressive series according to the laws of sensibility, and consequently must belong to the series of time. It follows that this necessary existence must be regarded as the highest member of the cosmological series. Certain philosophers have, nevertheless, allowed themselves the liberty of making such a saltus, metabasis eis alogonos. From the changes in the world, they have concluded their empirical contingency, that is, their dependence on empirically determined causes and they thus admitted an ascending series of empirical conditions, and in this they are quite right. But, as they could not find in this series any primal beginning or highest member, they passed suddenly from the empirical conception of contingency to the pure category, which presents us with a series, not sensuous but intellectual, whose completeness does certainly rest upon the existence of an absolutely necessary cause. Nay, more, this intellectual series is not tied to any sensuous conditions, and is therefore free from the condition of time, which requires it spontaneously to begin its causality in time. But such a procedure is perfectly inadmissible, as will be made plain from what follows. In the pure sense of the categories, that is contingent, the contradictory opposite of which is possible. Now, we cannot reason from empirical contingency to intellectual, the opposite of that which is changed, the opposite of its state, is actual at another time, 
and is therefore possible. Consequently, it is not the contradictory opposite of the former state. To be that, it is necessary that, in the same time in which the preceding state existed, its opposite could have existed in its place. But such a cognition is not given us in the mere phenomenon of change. A body that was in motion equals A comes to a state of rest equals non-A. Now, it cannot be concluded from the fact that a state opposite to the state A follows it, that the contradictory opposite of A is possible, and that A is therefore contingent. To prove this, we should require to know that the state of rest could have existed in the very same time in which the motion took place. Now we know nothing more than that the state of rest was actual in the time that followed the state of motion, consequently that it was also possible. But motion at one time and rest at another time are not contradictorily opposed to each other. It follows from what has been said that the succession of opposite determinations, that is, change, does not demonstrate the fact of contingency as represented in the conceptions of the pure understanding, and that it cannot, therefore, conduct us to the fact of the existence of a necessary being. Change proves merely empirical contingency, that is to say, that the new state could not have existed without a cause which belongs to the preceding time. This cause even although it is regarded as absolutely necessary, must be presented to us in time, and must belong to the series of phenomena. On the Antithesis The difficulties which meet us in our attempt to rise through the series of phenomena to the existence of an absolutely necessary supreme cause must not originate from our inability to establish the truth of our mere conceptions of the necessary existence of a thing. That is to say, our objections not be ontological, but must be directed against the causal connection with a series of phenomena of a condition which is itself unconditioned. In one word, they must be cosmological, and relate to empirical laws. We must show that the regress in the series of causes, in the world of sense, cannot conclude with an empirically unconditioned condition, and that the cosmological argument from the contingency of the cosmical state, a contingency alleged to arise from change, does not justify us in accepting a first cause, that is, a prime originator of the cosmical series. The reader will observe in this antinomy a very remarkable contrast. The very same grounds of proof which established in the thesis the existence of a supreme being, demonstrated in the antithesis, and with equal strictness, the non-existence of such a being. We found first that a necessary being exists, because the whole time past contains the series of all conditions, and with it, therefore, the unconditioned, the necessary. Secondly, that there does not exist any necessary being, for the same reason, that the whole time past contains the series of all conditions, which are themselves, therefore, in the aggregate, conditioned. The cause of this seeming incongruity is as follows. We attend, in the first argument, 
solely to the absolute totality of the series of conditions, the one of which determines the other in time, and thus arrive at a necessary unconditioned. In the second, we consider, on the contrary, the contingency of everything that is determined in the series of time, for every event is preceded by a time in which the condition itself must be determined as conditioned, and thus everything that is unconditioned or absolutely necessary disappears. In both, the mode of proof is quite in accordance with the common procedure of human reason, which often falls into discord with itself from considering an object from two different points of view. Herr von Meyren regarded the controversy between two celebrated astronomers, which arose from a similar difficulty as to the choice of a proper standpoint, as a phenomenon of sufficient importance to warrant a separate treatise on the subject. The one concluded, The moon revolves on its own axis, because it constantly presents the same side to the earth. The other declared that the moon does not revolve on its own axis for the same reason. Both conclusions were perfectly correct, according to the point of view from which the motions of the moon were considered. End Chapter 2 The Antinomy of Pure Reason Section 2 Antithetic of Pure Reason This recording is in the public domain.